Welcome to Pitch Deck Series 5, where we'll be having bite-sized conversations with established investors in early-stage startups. Looking to provide you with great nuggets of information when raising or considering raising seed capital. Pitch Deck is supported by Trumpet. If you work in sales or marketing and are tired of spending hours a week creating sales decks, then Trumpet is for you. Design personalized, interactive and trackable mini sites in a few clicks. Stand out from the crowd whilst also giving your customers a seamless experience from pitch to onboarding. To find out more, visit www.sendtrumpet.com. That's sendtrumpet.com and join the best in brass. So I'm really, really excited to welcome Nikhil Shah to the Pitch Deck studio today. Nikhil is a creative technology and social impact entrepreneur, passionate about supporting mission-driven founders on their entrepreneurial journeys. He is the founder of Mixcloud, the world's leading streaming platform for the DJ and radio community, with over 20 million listeners and four hours of content uploaded every minute. He now has a portfolio of startup advisory roles, social impact, and creative projects. He's also an angel investor with a portfolio of around 30 startups spanning consumer, well-being, psychedelics, and the creative sectors. He's also a DJ, as you'd expect, and a trained yoga instructor, just for good measure. Nikhil, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. So yeah, let's just dive straight in. So the thing that caught my eye there, which I want to dive into at the start, is psychedelics. So I've seen a lot around psychedelics at the moment. So just as an angel investor, what are you liking in that space? What's really piquing your interest? And what's exciting you about the the growth of that space? Yeah, sure. It's It's a great place to start. What excites me as an angel investor is firstly, I think it's a sector that is incredibly important in terms of impact. It's addressing a major problem in the world, which is the growth of mental illness and problems around mental well-being and the world, which has been catalyzed, of course, by COVID. I think fundamentally, there are pretty much two really, really important sectors that have the potential for outsized returns and outsized social impact, which is investing in psychedelics and mental health and climate change. Now, personally, I'm, you know, I've developed much more of an interest in areas around mental well-being. Psychedelics feels like, you know, an area that is incredibly important and something that I can invest in that can make a real impact in the world. From a, a psychedelic point of view, is it the, the actual psychedelics? Is it like a D to C offering or is there an infrastructure play as well? Yeah, good question. It's, it starts off with actually not D to C and distribution of it. It's actually the research. Um, so there's really three kind of key verticals of where the action is in the industry. The first of it is drug development. The second is distribution. So that might be retreats and that might be actual you know, distribution of, of the, um, the compounds themselves. And the third is what we call the platform and ancillary businesses. So that's, you know, data, that's education, it's dispensary, all that kind of stuff. Now, in the first vertical, that's where most of the action is right now, because bear in mind, we're still living in a world where these compounds are illegal. In many states in the US, they're now decriminalized, but they're still not available for legal consumption. So phase one of this industry is 
to build the use case to to do the the research the clinical research to demonstrate the efficacy and actually move towards legalization first for clinical use and then ultimately for recreational and, and kind of well-being use so it's almost like a sort of a, a, a medi business where you you they need to spend millions on research and as an investor that's your big risk but then if it all gets approved then the reward is thereafter you are spot on yeah and that that for me was um was a really interesting learning curve coming from tech and consumer internet where i kind of understand what to look for in a business and how the business models work as you rightly pointed out moving from that into what is essentially a classic pharma you know biopharma the model here is you know these companies are take developing often novel compounds they're taking let's say a kind of a variant of psilocybin or or a, a variant of you know kind of ketamine or something like that and trying to find a novel compound that can have a very specific use case so instead of taking a generic you're finding an, a variant of, of psilocybin that really addresses existential distress in cancer patients who are facing kind of end-of-life illness and they then have to take this drug through phase one two and three clinical trials and essentially at each phase the risk goes down and the valuation goes up up to the point where really the big step changes if they can take these drugs to market that's when the impact of these drugs will be seen in the world and the return to the investors as well and without trying to uh, use a, a cliche here, but is CBD almost like the gateway drug to this whole new world, or is that a totally different space? It's an interesting question. I mean, the, the, the cannabis space is certainly helped in terms of you know, showing regulators and legislators that there is a pathway to deregulating compounds and then taking them into the market, whether that's for clinical use or recreational use. But actually, typically in the psychedelics world, cannabis is treated as a separate industry and a separate kind of compound and use case. Okay, good to know, good to know. Um, so yeah, as you just mentioned before, obviously your world, uh, which you've been extremely successful in, has been around tech. So let's bring it back to tech. So as a, an angel investor, let's start with what for you when you speak to a founder are those critical points that you think yes they they are backable what do they have to show you when you're maybe on your first 30 minute call with them yeah look bear in mind this is going to be very personal and very subjective to me um and i think i'm a particular kind of investor that likes to back certain types of founders i very much look for people that have an insane amount of passion for what they're building and typically are solving their own problem scratching their own itch you know, I, I'm just not particularly into, I'm not one of these guys that's, that's going to back the, the kid that's just left his high paid banking job and sees tech as a, a way to, to make their fortune. I'm looking for people that really want to solve meaningful problems or create meaningful value, you know, kind of could be creative value, it could be, you know, entertainment businesses that, that bring joy to the world, but people that just have an insane amount of passion and belief in what they do and they really care about the, the domain they work in. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point because, you know, I'm, I'm very passionate as well about sort of helping underrepresented founders from my own personal community as well. Um, and ones, yeah, that have maybe struggled and ex as you're saying, have experienced a pain point. But as we know, in sort of the investment world, it's very difficult for, for those type of people to raise money, especially 
you know, almost like pre-product, pre-revenue. So what advice can you give to these people who, yeah, don't have mum and dad's bank account to, to sort of fund the MVP and are coming to investors pretty cold? How, as well as passion, because, you know, that gets you so far, how how can they prove to, to an investor, do you think that they are backable and worth taking a chance on? Yeah, absolutely. First, to clarify, when I say passion, obviously, passion is not enough. But what I mean really is, to clarify that previous point, people that are working in a domain that they truly understand, they have passion, they have expertise, and they're scratching their own itch. So for example, when we started to build Mixcloud, you know, we were DJs, club promoters, and big, big fans of DJ culture. And we identified this problem that we really felt like we wanted to solve, but we also had to solve because I grew up watching DJ tapes, going to clubs and standing at the front like a you know backpacking geek with my with my um, notepad, you know, writing down all the tunes that people were playing. And it was like, I had to solve this problem because it was a, it was a, it was a culture I cared about. So passion along with expertise. Now onto your next question, how do you then get people's attention or demonstrate that, you know, you can do this when you're coming from a position maybe of kind of less privilege? I think, you know, one thing I would say is like, big up the things that you have achieved in your life and don't always be, don't, don't go looking for the typical markers of success. I believe, and maybe I'm a bit, a bit naively optimistic here, but I believe we're in a world that's changing now where people understand how to read the CV of someone who's, you know, studied at Oxbridge, worked at McKinsey, worked in a top tier bank, blah, 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 blah. But I believe we're also living in a world where there is a bit more nuance around how people read success. And if you can demonstrate that, look, you know, you, you, grew up in a less privileged background, didn't go to a, a top tier school or university, but actually in the community you're in, you killed it. You know, you were like top of the class in wherever you went, or you had this side hustle that made a huge amount of success in kind of, you know, in, in a small amount of time because you did it on the side while you're having to study, or you had three jobs to pay for your education or whatever it is. Like these are the kinds of stories that I think people really actually it makes people perk up because so they, they can see that this is a founder that's going to have resilience. And the key word there is resilience because, you know, anyone that's investing who has been through building, they know that it's bloody hard. You know, it takes grit. It takes resilience. And, and often, actually, ironically, people that come from less privileged backgrounds have more of that. So, so dial into that, you know. Yeah, I think that's, that's brilliant advice for anyone listening. And let, let's take it a step before the 30 minute call, what do you want to see in a pitch deck? So it lands in your LinkedIn or it lands in your inbox. What is a good pitch deck for you? And what sort of key, let's say, tick points when you scan through a deck are you looking for? I'm so glad you asked me that question. I was thinking about that a little bit before, before this, uh, this interview. But actually, let's, first, let's talk about the, the message or the email. Yeah, as you said, it might land in my LinkedIn. Someone might somehow find my email. But you know, remember, this is a, um, a conversion funnel, right? You've got to get someone's attention to get them to even open the deck in the first place. So my first thing, and this is going to be such obvious advice, but so many people make this mistake. Please, please don't spray and pray with your emails. You know, just take that time to, to craft something that is really tailored, that, you know, demonstrates that you have spent a few minutes getting to know the angel that you're contacting and that, you know, this is a, a company or a deal that is interesting for them for a particular reason. You know, I, if people take the time to craft something that I know has been written for me, I will always respond. 
like always, 100%, I will respond. If I get a, an email that is just a generic, it may have my name in it, but it's clearly a copy and paste. It's, it's you know, actually quite disrespectful. And there's no reason that I need to spend my time responding to that. So yeah, firstly, craft a really good cover email. And then I'm sure you would agree with that point. Um, yes. and, then, <laughs> and then, yeah, the, the deck, once you actually get my attention, I open the deck. It's, you know, it's pretty, pretty common stuff. Like, you know, less is more, I think, for the initial deck. I think the first few slides make such a bit, such, are so important, right, to capture people's attention and frame the problem and the solution in a simple, pithy way to get my attention. Now, look, uh, it ties in with the previous point that I have clearly, you know, I have certain interests in terms of what I invest in. And it's, it's, it's quite obvious because I speak about it actively on my LinkedIn, on my Twitter. So there's certain industries and there's certain types of deals that are going to get my attention and I'm going to look at them more carefully. But it also means that I'm going to be a bit more kind of, you know, I'm going to have a bit more scrutiny over the way that those, those businesses are, are communicated in terms of their value proposition, the problem they're solving. So yeah, a pithy few opening slides is so important. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Uh, you know, as an investor, you're seeing lots and lots of decks and, and within the first two or three slides, if you don't know what the problem they're solving is and how they're going to solve it, you, you, you probably don't carry on, to be honest. So you don't have this, you know, five slides to build up to it. What's your view on, which I've seen uh, more recently, before problem solution, some people are putting like an overview slide you know, this, this is where we are slide. Do, do you think that should sit at the top of a deck or do you prefer to get straight into problem solution? That's a really good question. I like these kinds of questions. It's super practical. I think it depends on the business because frankly, like it depends if you have enough to show in that overview, but I am a fan of those slides. It's like an exec summary. I, you know what I actually also do like, to be honest, similar to what you said, but a lot of people I'm seeing are doing that in the cover email, right? So the email says, you know, it's a couple of sentences at the top that are tailored to me. You know, I'm getting in touch with you because I know that you're passionate about well-being. I'm building this great business that's going to solve mental health for the whole world. This is why I need to think you should look at it. And then it's like, see information about the business below. And below you have a, a paragraph on the business and then, you know, three to five bullet points on key highlights. I think that is a really good way of doing it because that gets people's attention to open the deck, like I said. And that can... So I think your point about, you know, it's like an exact summary it can either be in the body of the email or it can be slide one, but I think it's a really good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. And what's your take on obviously the rise, you know, is like Loom and Vidyard for either a sort of one minute video intro or the actual deck to be sort of spoken through video. Like, do, you know, the thing with video that I always say when founders ask me is, well, sometimes actually I'm, I'm just like flicking I don't want to watch or listen, but that might be just me being cynical. Do, do you like that more sort of video personal approach or do you prefer just to get a deck to read through? Yeah, it's an interesting one because I'm seeing that more and more as well. I would agree with you that I don't think it's a replacement. I think it's a really good addition. If someone's got a brilliant uh, loom, especially with a product demo, you know, I'm very, very product focused as an investor. I like to see what people have built. I like to talk to them about, you know, how they built it, what the product thesis is, who's using it, what they've learned from their early users. And the more I can actually see that, the better. But I think it's a really good accompaniment. 
And yeah, we haven't got too much time left, but a question I like to dig in just because it, it interests me is around competition. So obviously the spaces you've mentioned, well-being, positive impact, psychedelics less so, but I imagine in that world, it's getting very busy now as well. You know, to, to your line that you just said previously, like, you know, we are going to be this, this mental well-being platform that's going to solve mental health for, for the world. How, how important is competition for you when reading a deck or deciding whether to invest or not do do you see competition as validation of a space or do you see it as maybe you guys have sort of missed the boat here yeah do you mind before i answer that i just want to make us another point which is related to this question around big vision and big ambition which for me is is quite an important thing in terms of the way that i evaluate businesses at an early stage. So you're talking about big vision, big ambition. What I tend to think about when I look at a business at an early stage is a really, really exciting vision of what this business could become, but not that much detail around that because I don't need detail around the five-year vision. I just need to know that there is a vision in mind and then a lot of detail around what the next 12 months look like. But basically the years one to five I don't care about. I just want to know that like, you've got your arms around this business for the next 12 to 18 months, and you, you have a direction of travel that means in five years it could be really big, really exciting, and really impactful. So that kind of ties into your point about vision. And then how that kind of segueing from there back into your question around competition, how important is competition? I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously important to show, like it, I think it's really naive to receive a deck where there just isn't any mention of the competition because you're then kind of asking the investor to take on that cognitive load of trying to imagine who you think the competition is and where they fit in so i think number one that's a little bit lazy and puts too much work on the investor which is not a good idea and number two like you just the idea of the competition slide is to to understand the thesis on how the founder thinks about the space it's not necessarily that we are building something that is 100% unique because yeah there may be other people doing something that's broadly in a similar space or somewhat kind of in the same quadrant. But it's just about understanding that they have a, a good strategic overview of where the white space is in this industry and, and how they're going to frankly stand out and differentiate. Because as you say, most industries now are insanely competitive. Yeah, I think that those are all great, great points. And what's your view on, from a competitor landscape point of view, like just a straight shootout? So it's like, let's say it's psychedelic. So it's like, okay, well, we, we, we think we've got this. We and the other one thinks they have this. And it's basically like a straight shootout for the winner. Do you ever sort of go on a race like that and sort of think you're backing the winner? Or do you really like to see some form of key USP? Uh, that's an interesting question. It's, um, you know, that answer is different depending on whether you're looking at what you believe is a winner-takes-all market versus a market where there's space for multiple winners. For example, let's take consumer and D2C space. You know, most companies are back there, you know, whether it's supplements or, you know, CPG companies like seltzer brands or non-alcoholic drinks. There's going to be space for multiple consumer brands in these in these categories. So, it's fine for the, you know, for the deck to come across like, yeah, we are playing in a space that is already fairly crowded, but we are doing things in our particular way. Either they are like incredibly brand focused and 
they understand how to build a world-class brand that will stand out, or they are incredibly commercially astute and they have you know, insane distribution channels and kind of sales ready to roll. So yes, I think it's, it's fine to invest. I, I personally am, am comfortable investing in, in companies that are you know, kind of going head to head with multiple other companies in the same category, as long as they can show me that they have something that they are insanely good at. Brilliant. I think that's great advice, especially for anyone listening who's a, a D2C founder. So yeah, that, that's all we've got time for, Nikhil. So thank you so much for, for joining me and yeah, really appreciate your wisdom. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to today's episode. And if you enjoyed it, I'd hugely appreciate it if you can share it on socials or indeed just with your network. If you're feeling extra generous, I'd absolutely love it if you could leave us a review on Spotify, the Play Store or iTunes. That is the only way we get more listeners. So thanks for that. Support for Pitch Deck also comes from Planes Studio. If you've got an idea for a business and want to quickly get a product live, you should check them out. Whether you're a startup or scale-up, they help you take your idea, build a prototype and launch it into market before your competitors do. And they'll also keep learning from your customers to only build the features you need as you grow. We've worked with them at Horseplay Ventures and I can safely say they're some of the smartest product thinkers and builders out there right now. So check out planes.studio.